This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good evening and welcome, everyone. I really apologise for all the technical difficulties um, that we had earlier. had a real nightmare with my headset, and I've had to swap to my son's ones, but all systems go. Thank you very much to the fantastic TTR team. So you are listening, finally, to The Late Show on Teacher Talk Radio. Radio, And you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. So, I am Fanola Jackson, and it's really great to have you along. Thank you for bearing with me. So, we are a little bit late starting, and I do apologise for that. Um, But we will be live until 9.30, and thank you so much for tuning in. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at TT Radio. Well, that would be the shortest show on history, wouldn't it? So, I don't think we want that jingle coming on right now. Um, You can tell it's the first show of the academic year and I'm still trying to get into the swing of it a little bit. So please bear with me. And I'm just looking to see if my guest is joining. Um, So hopefully she will be joining shortly. But yes, so welcome to my very first show of the academic year. I'm going to be hosting the first Sunday of the month and I'm really excited to be doing this. And I've lined up some fantastic guests for you. And I really can't believe that it's September already. And it's no surprise that just as we're all about to return to school, the sun has finally made an appearance. I hope you've all enjoyed it to the full this weekend. And yes, in true British fashion, we toiled through exceptionally hot weather, didn't we, in June My second son was knee-deep in GCSEs during the heat wave. And then during August, when we're all off, it's wet, cold and miserable. So I will be moving to a new school and starting my first headship tomorrow. And I'm really excited for this. I was amazed when I found out that my new school has air conditioning. In my experience, don't know about you, but certainly primary schools have two distinct zones and you're either in the Baltic or you're in the Arctic. And the jury is out about which is more bearable. But having seen the incredible forecast for this week, suddenly I'm feeling very thankful for the air conditioning unit. And my heart goes out to all the schools affected by this concrete nightmare at the moment. As you'll be aware, and you'll have heard it um, on the news, more than 150 schools were told only last week, days before they were due to reopen, that they would have to close because of this unstable reinforced material, often described, I believe, as aerobar concrete, and there's a real risk of collapse. And I read this morning that this concrete, along with asbestos, was used widely in the post-war building boom, But this particular type of concrete only has a 30-year lifespan. It really is the stuff of nightmares, isn't it? And hats off to all the school leaders and all the teachers who are in the throes of emergency planning and who are just calmly and wisely making these contingency plans to still operate in children's centres, porter cabins, 
even office blocks and re oh, return to the dreaded virtual learning. So this backdrop makes tonight's session perhaps even more meaningful. And I'm delighted to be joined this evening by Maria O'Neill. And we are going to be chatting about how schools can be oases of hope, love and havens of safety. Now, Maria is the author of a very highly rated book, Proactive Pastoral Care. I have thoroughly enjoyed reading this over the summer break, and it's a wonderful insight into nurturing happy, healthy and successful learners. So welcome, Maria. Thank you so much for joining us on a Sunday evening. And perhaps we could start by um, you introducing yourself and telling us a little bit um, about what inspired you to become so passionate about pastoral work. Thank you. It's a real pleasure being here tonight. So a little bit about myself. I think I'm starting the third year in education this year. I had um, quite a busy career doing all sorts of things, going from academic to pastoral, from pastoral to academic. What makes me passionate about pastoral care? I think it's the personal experiences as well as everything that I have done around uh, pastoral care, the research, the work with the colleagues. Um, you know, I have got two children uh, of my own and I have seen how schools do it brilliantly and I have seen how schools don't get it quite right and what effect it has on the young person. So, yes, very much a personal and professional interest in pastoral care. And, you know, with the research hat on as well, the academic interest to add to this too as well. Yeah, it's great you're sharing um, your personal experience as well as, as a mother. And I'm sure many of our listeners um, can really relate to that. And, and it's it's hard, isn't it, as a mum, and you're trying to sort of keep your emotions in check, but you're seeing the, you know, um, direct impact of perhaps less than um, adequate um, pastoral care. And that, that can be a real challenge, can't it? And, and having those, opening up those professional dialogues and, you know, you're really hoping then that there's a really good parent partnership so that the school's valuing your, your passion, but also your expertise, your wisdom, your experience, and, you know, all that you can see as a mum. I think, you know, that engagement and involvement is um, very important. We have got to get the parents on board in terms of pastoral care. However, all the research and my personal experience points to the fact that actually parents are more engaged when it comes to academic. But the problem is academic is not possible without the pastoral bit, because when we're talking about behavior, you know, whether it's for learning or just general behavior, it is pastoral because um, we have got to take into account where these uh, students come from and what they have experienced. You know, I had to teach a student who had just been to the family court, you know, and you can't just ignore the fact that that has just happened. So there is a lot of talk about uh, engaging parents. And I think we have got to distinguish between involvement and engagement. And with involvement, it is really easy to measure because, you know, how many parents the parents attended the evening, how many parents opened their inboxes to read the email, you know, 
that is measurable. But how can you measure the actual engagement? How many parents actually did not just tell their kids to take to put the phones away for the night, but actually made sure that they did do that? We we can't get into that personal life of families, so it is really difficult to measure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, all re really excellent points, isn't it? And you know, as a mum of four myself it's you know it can be a huge battle and you need a lot of energy and commitment don't you to sort of really following through those um guidelines as well and, and make sure that you're not just paying lip service and saying things but then you're actually checking aren't you and then as you're saying having that that dialogue with schools and schools really do have that responsibility don't they to get that um engagement right and really um you know, reach out in the right way to parents as well, because it can be quite fine, can't it, for parents, especially if they've had a bad experience of school themselves and um, they might be feeling uh, a bit defensive or uh, a bit got at, and, and it can all get quite tricky quite quickly, can't it? Oh, absolutely. And we go back to the topic of relationships. How do we form our relationships with parents? What information do we give to them? Are we being proactive or are we just, you know, issuing detentions or sanctions and we're just informing the parents? How many uh, instances of positive communication or preventative communication have we cared than just the reactive ones? And that's all, you know, goes to, you know, to show when we see it, whether parents really engage and get involved or whether they do pay lip service to what the school does. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm suddenly conscious that we've been talking for quite a while about pastoral care, but we haven't really explored um, a definition, have we? Um, and I know that, you know, perhaps listeners in America may be thinking of pastoral, perhaps with a uh, religious context, they might be picturing a Christian minister. So could you, from your uh, research, perhaps share um a recognised definition of an accepted definition of pastoral care for us. I've read so many different books and no one can really give that definitive um, definition of what pastoral care is and that's why it's so important for every single school to define it in, in, in their own way that is close to their community for me, um, pastoral care is what we do to make students flourish and to make sure that they do achieve the best that they can. And it's that holistic sense of education that I have in mind when I'm talking about pastoral care. In terms of pastoral care and where it comes from, you know, for me, um, it's rooted into the notion of well-being and Partly, it's really difficult to define pastoral care because no one really managed to define well-being and what well-being is. For me, and based on the research that I have done, well-being has got five different areas. So for me, well-being is, of course, you know, the physical, the mental, but then there is the emotional and the social and also some people call it transpersonal, which is fair enough. But I don't think, you know, this terminology will relate to pupils or staff. So I call it moral growth or spiritual growth. And also within that growth, we have got the academic growth and we have got the skills growth as well. 
so that's again complicates things a little bit so for me those five are the five pillars of pastoral care and of well-being excellent i've never heard that before the five pillars of pastoral care but i love that i'm definitely going to be delving a little bit deeper into that um, for my own professional development and knowledge so thank you so much for that maria and i think we're going to move to the news now and let, let's hear what's going on um, in the educational world but stay tuned and we will be right back it's time for a fresh start to language learning Pearson Edexcel's new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. This is Teachers Talk Radio. And this is Teachers Talk Radio News. A wide range of media outlets have covered the ongoing issue of reinforced autoclaved aerated concrete or rack and its use in buildings, including schools, leading to concerns around safety. The BBC reports that buildings at 52 schools in England were at risk of sudden collapse due to dangerous concrete. While safety measures have since been put in place at these schools because the situation was deemed critical, more than 100 others have also now been told to close areas with the concrete. These buildings were previously thought to be at less risk. The new guidance follows the collapse of a beam that was thought to be safe. Head teachers are now making alternative plans just days before the start of the new academic year. Some pupils have been told they will be learning remotely, whilst others are being housed in temporary classrooms or even at other schools. The total number of confirmed schools affected in England is 156. The news has since triggered concerns in all three of the home nations. The Scottish Government said it was trying to establish how many schools contain RAC, whilst in Wales investigations continue, although there have been no reports at present. The Northern Ireland DV said schools were being checked as a matter of urgency. Ministers in England have been facing media and having struggled to keep up with a range of questions being asked, including how fixing the issues caused by RAC will be paid for. Opposition MPs have pointed out that schools themselves already have issues with funding and that local authorities have seen cuts in recent years, so finances may not be there at a local level. The DfE has also faced criticism for not publishing a list of schools affected, although it defended its actions, saying parents should hear direct from the school itself, at least at first. A school in Southend, which caters for pupils with physical and learning difficulties, has contacted the BBC to outline the significant challenges it is facing as the closure of its main building means staff and pupils cannot access essential special equipment. Whatever the outcome, it is certain that, for some pupils, this is the start of yet another unusual school year. 
away from issues with buildings, Schools Week reports on plans to ensure all schools in England hold electronic registers, which the Education Secretary will have direct access to. However, proposals to introduce thresholds at which penalty notices must be considered for unauthorised absences are paused. They were part of the currently shelved New Schools Bill. New rules are not expected to come into force until 2024, but it has been made clear that ministers see attendance as an area which must improve. More than half of parents who responded to the consultation on the plans for e-registers disagreed due to the possible punitive use of the data collected. Officials said it would be used to enable better early intervention. 92% of local authority workers and 85% of school staff who responded support the plan. The DfE will move forward with changes to simplify recording of attendance or absence. In total, 22.3% of pupils miss more than one in 10 sessions in the 2022-2023 academic year. This is compared to 22.5% in the year 21-22, despite significant government intervention. Prior to the pandemic, these rates sat between 10 and 13%. The TES reports that a group of watchdogs, including Ofsted, are jointly to carry out targeted inspections in schools where there is a risk of pupils being exposed to serious violence or exploitation. The inspections happen in six unnamed local authorities and examine how police, social services and health services tackle serious youth violence. The focus will be on multi-agency interventions and could include interventions in schools, parks, shopping centres or specific streets where young people may be at risk. The team will include representatives from Ofsted, the Care Quality Commission, HMI of Constabulary, HMI of Probation Services, and each team will be led by an Ofsted Health and Social Care Inspector. Where a school is involved, they will be asked to show they have effective systems to identify children at risk of or subject to serious youth violence and children who are missing from school. The inspections will end in May next year. Full details of the report can be found on TES online. Finally, The Guardian reports that Lego is to begin selling bricks coded with Braille to help blind and partially sighted children learn to read the touch-based alphabet. The Danish makers of the bricks have made specialist versions tested and developed by blind organisations across the globe. The bricks have been sent to a selection of schools free of charge since 2020, but now they will be available more widely. LEGO hopes the initiative will help parents, siblings and others share in learning Braille and to encourage play interactions between sighted children and visually impaired friends. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Okay, so welcome back. I'm just thinking, Maria, there were so many pastoral issues in tonight's news bulletin. And it's just really when I was listening to all those different um, segments there, and I'm just thinking that excellent pastoral care must have the power to be truly transformative. So why is it that not all schools are delivering on this? What are the barriers, do you think? I think traditionally um, schools have always been regarded as academic establishments. Um, I'm going back 
20 something years ago when I first started and we never had a DSL. We never had loads of things that we have got now. And it is, you know, really correct and likely that schools reacted to what is happening in the world and that we started safeguarding um, young people. But if you look at the history of safeguarding as well, why did we have all those different legislations? Because something tragic has happened. So safeguarding has been always quite reactive in many respects. And um, that's what schools have become. Yes, we have um, said that we have got pastoral care and um, I prefer pastoral support and I'll tell you why, because we might we all care about students, otherwise we wouldn't have been in the positions and the posts that we, ha- we are in. But it's knowing what the world is and it's about being proactive with that support. And in my experience, we have embraced all the changes, but we haven't really had the time to stop and think, well, how can we be proactive about all of this? Because a lot of schools that I visit, even you know nowadays, they're still very much reactive to what is happening, and you know this is just where we're at. There is, you know, these are the circumstances, and that's why I have been, you know, pioneering, not pioneering because it's the wrong word, but I have been promoting being proactive about pastoral care. We weren't prepared for COVID, and we can see how it has affected, um, you know, our students, our curriculum, our pastoral curriculum, and I'm just generalising, you know, it hasn't been uh, proactive enough to prepare young people for all the difficulties and the challenges and the changes that's happening in the world. So we have embraced pastoral care, but I don't think we have had enough time because, you know, when you're in a school, it's an express train, but we haven't had that thinking time of saying we have got to be really, really proactive about our uh, pastoral support or pastoral care. Yeah, and if you have, um, I mean, I don't want to say a pastoral lead listening because pastoral is everyone's responsibility, isn't it, in schools? But just looking, you know, and thinking about the news as well going on with the concrete and schools being closed and perhaps children being moved into unfamiliar buildings and perhaps just for part of the week and then as you mentioned COVID and then balancing the home learning as well and you know it's hard not to be anything but reactive isn't it but are you saying you know we should really have learned the lessons from COVID and perhaps we could be going into this nightmare that several schools across the UK are facing, um, but going into it a little bit differently. What, what advice would you give to listeners tonight who are worried about how to meet these extraordinary pastoral demands that we're you know, going to be hit with over the next few weeks? I'm just going to give you a brief example before I answer your question. That's, um, that's a really good question. Thank you. When we were teaching e-safety, for example, uh, before pre-COVID, we were always talking about having that balance, having the balance between the time in the real life and time online. What happened with COVID is that we put everything online, our children's interactions, our children's studies, everything has gone online. So our advice 
in many cases, when we were talking about that balance between the real life and the digital world, well, wasn't quite appropriate during the time of COVID because we reacted and we put everything online. Now, what would have been, just looking back, you know, what would have been the better way? The better way would have researched, would have been to research what is going on? What are young people doing online? Why they are attracted to the online world? Manage their behavior or help them to manage their behavior online help them to really embrace the online world rather than you know having all those issues related to addiction and all the other things so i think if we were to start with identity and who you are and how you react to different things and how to manage our emotions in the online world where the decisions are made really fast it's a very fast-paced environment we would have been much better off. But obviously, that's just looking back and trying to learn from the lessons of COVID. Again, our pastoral curriculum needs to be proactive. We need to focus on raising self-awareness, self-understanding, well, self uh, self-compassion, self-love, whatever it is. But we really need to build up that resilience. It's a horrible, horrible situation. And, you know, world is quite a challenging place right now with all the things happening with so many families are in poverty, financial, you know, difficulties. We have got the conflict going on. It's a really challenging world. And we have got to focus on ourselves and build that inner strength and inner resilience that we can cope with all the external circumstances. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it goes back to when we were discussing a title for this show and, you know, really making schools that haven of safety and haven of love. And, you know, we really do have a duty to do that, don't we? Because there are so many external challenges and difficulties and, you know, children and our young people are carrying a lot of worry. Their families are carrying a lot of worry. And, you know, we've really got a duty more than ever haven't we to get this right and as you said stop being reactive and really start prioritizing um, pastoral care and really being proactive um, with it is essential isn't it you know to have something that's you know going to be adequate and and, and robust enough to meet the challenges absolutely i think in some respect covid helped to raise the status of pastoral care a little bit but in the past if i'm looking back and again i'm very much generalizing but we did a little bit of a research and it seemed that people didn't choose to go into pastoral care because with the academic progression it was quite easy there is a really simple um straightforward route for progression as such Again, I'm simplifying here. But with pastoral care, how do you progress through pastoral care? Um, you know, in the past, we have done, again, a little bit more of research. And if you were to get to the very top, it's the academic stuff that, that was valued quite a lot. And academic would get you to the senior leadership, to the head teacher positions. Again, I have spoken to many uh, teachers during that um, research project 
and it it turned out again i'm generalizing because we didn't have a large sample but a lot of people were sort of pushed into pastoral because they couldn't progress academically so we have got to really raise the profile of pastoral care starting with the initial teacher training starting with everything because now the system has changed schools have changed and we need to instill that into the people coming into profession that you know pastoral care or support is part of the parcel and we really have got to work on raising the status oh absolutely i mean i think i'm sure many of our listeners tonight would be saying that you know the pastoral um side is you know as important if not more important than the academic and you know that should always be the case and it isn't just something to be left to the lead and as you said when 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 the problems hit you know call on the pastoral lead it, it should be the responsibility of everybody shouldn't it and it should be really valued at a whole school level um and i think that's you know so important uh, right now as you were saying earlier and do you feel that there's many schools that are just simply paying lip service to, you know, having a pastoral team for the sake of it, putting something on their website, in the prospectus, but that's really, you know, not good enough? Or do you think that schools, you know, are in the main, and, and just to speak generally here, really um, seeing the, the importance? Do, do you feel that we're heading in the right direction at least? I think a lot of things have changed since I started back in, you know, 20 something years ago. It definitely has changed and we are moving um, in the right direction. But I think there are some obstacles to why schools maybe are ticking boxes when it comes to pastoral care. And um, there is no consensus. And the, to be fair, the guidelines from the government have been quite vague in terms of pastoral curriculum uh, in terms of the topics and especially not even the topics but how to deliver that's why we had all the different things coming out in terms of oh we did it this way we did it that way so the students are not getting consistency and that's for me that consistency across the board is very very important so it would have been an ideal world, absolutely fantastic to have the guidelines in terms of, and the knowledge, because what I find, you know, people don't necessarily have the right training and they don't have the knowledge to deliver materials in the way that they should be delivered. I'm talking about PSHC, but the reason why I'm talking about PSHC is that it's the starting point. Then whatever happens in PSHC should be picked up throughout the school because as you said you know pastoral uh, support or pastoral care is everybody's responsibility we can't tell to the, the tell the child well you can't speak to this member of staff because they're trained but no this member of staff is not trained you can't talk to them it's about connection and sometimes students won't connect to the people who are in pastoral roles they might connect to their tutor and tutors haven't had enough training, in my opinion, just, you know, with the, looking across the board. Schools have been brilliant. Some schools haven't done that yet. And um, it's so important. And it starts from what we, the, which actually knowledge are we going to uh, deliver? 
And that's very, very important. And there are so many experts and organizations. And if you probably look in your inbox, there are loads of people saying, we can do this for you, we can do that. But in my view, you have to have the knowledge of your context because no trainer, no expert would have that knowledge. You will have the knowledge of your expert and well, the, the expert knowledge and you need another expert who has got understanding of the well-being of mental health to tell you this is what's happening do you think you can apply that in your context and what about this so i'm talking more coaching style um, because we have got to appreciate that every context is unique and even the rest two schools close together the atmosphere the everything will be different because you will have different students and different staff so for me it's that consistency i'm going back to that it's consistency coming from the government it's consistency coming from the schools in terms of delivering everything um so that that is my answer i suppose yeah i know that that's really good food for thought maria thank you and i'm, I'm glad you mentioned emotional mental health and well-being because you know, it has been a really challenging few years universally, hasn't it, with so many unexpected changes and new ways of thinking and, you know, a stressful time for, for whole school communities. And at times it has felt relentless. And, you know, the pandemic certainly brought home an uncomfortable reality that this is a continuum, you know, a line and we can all be pushed up and down it. And now with issues with schools having to close again or rethink their provision and children faced with makeshift classrooms and and it's the uncertainty that's the killer isn't it and just it's not quite knowing what what's ahead and, and really supporting children and young people and really sort of empowering them with you know that it that will be okay and, and some coping mechanisms and and not with a false you know just smile through it and grit your teeth and get through it but but really giving children that sense of life is full of ups and downs and we're going to give you some strategies because that's the reality um and and going back to sort of well-being you know how would you describe well-being and, and perhaps what advice would you give schools um about well-being cpd because so often in my experience it can often be met with groans and a distinct lack of enthusiasm and you know, surely school leadership teams really need to be supermodels and well-being supermodels. And I don't mean that glibly, but really actively demonstrating this and really um, having a robust CPD package that, as you said, you know, it's okay if a student warms to somebody, but they might not have the knowledge and the expertise. So, so you know, how can schools really get their well-being well-being CPD and well-being provision um, spot on? So for me, um, it's very important to define well-being because if the school hasn't got a definition that everybody understands from uh, caretakers to the uh, head teacher, it's not going to work. So the first step I would take is to define what is well-being, what are we already doing? So I mentioned the five pillars of well-being before, which is mental health, which is physical health, emotional health, social, and the, um, the, the growth 
you know you have got the uh, spiritual growth you have got or the just the moral growth um the academic cognitive development and the skills development so the first thing is under those headlines under those pillars i call them the, you know the schools are already doing quite a lot so it's taking stock of what you're already doing what you already have got in place and if there is some bits missing that's where your cpd is is aiming to well it's aiming to close those gaps um again you know when we talk about evaluating pastoral care or pastoral support how do you do that well that structure gives you the system to evaluate your uh, provision so for example with the social well-being and uh, i mentioned that because social and emotional have been the most affected during the recent times okay social well-being what does that mean it's the relationships of pupils with staff it's the relationships of people between them it's the relationships of pupils with their families so what do we do you know, and the, the questions that need to be asked, are we doing enough uh, to uh, enough work on friendships? Are we teaching our pupils how to be friends? Um, are we teaching them about what it's like, about the friendship dynamics, about different roles and behaviours we take on in, in friendships? And the reason why I'm using the word behaviours because um, Whenever I do something on PSHC or pastoral care, I start with identity and looking at identity, looking at self-understanding. So how do you behave in those relationships? Why do you behave? So again, how can you evaluate? You can look and see how many friendship incidents you have got. And that system really allows you to narrow down and monitor and evaluate and assess separate areas of pastoral care and of well-being because if you say oh yes you know and i have received those emails in my inbox we come over and evaluate well-being really um you know people have been arguing for thousands and thousands of years or thousands and hundreds of years about well-being how can you evaluate it so it is really looking what is happening in your own context and then that's the starting point everything. Yeah, that's brilliant. That's great advice. Thank you so much. And, you know, I think there's a plethora, isn't there, of promotional material that gets sent to schools offering these quick fixes. And, you know, we can all see the temptation of buying into these. Um, but why why would you say that schools should be cautious? Because is, is doing something better than nothing? Or, or what would be your response to that? I think that sometimes when we go after quick fixes, we never fix the real stuff. And the problems that need to be fixed are left there. So even if the plaster can work for it for some time, when it comes off, we still have got some work to do. So for me, um, the way I look at CPD and the way I look at supporting schools, well, the most effective way of supporting schools is empowerment you know unless staff are empowered unless staff feel the ownership and uh, nothing is going to change and that's for me the crucial bit that ownership and empowerment and the staff might not have the knowledge if they don't have the knowledge they can't empower pupils they can't empower parents 
So for me, the quick fix, sometimes it's just a quick fix. It just stays there. It's not solving anything. Um, for me, I would say the most advisable thing would be to get someone who has the knowledge and who will support the school on their journey. That's why in many respects, and it might be something that people will disagree with, but I don't believe in one-day courses because when you go on a one-day course and you come back to school you know, with loads of ideas, you're back in the bubble. And very often, no matter how great the trainer was, no matter how great the course materials were, it's not sustainable. It doesn't lead to that long-term change. So... You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I've seen myself included in this. You go on a course, you're all fired up, you come back with a huge amount of enthusiasm. But as you were saying earlier, schools are 100 miles an hour. You soon get sort of distracted and in the thick of other things. And and then you're not passing on that valuable knowledge. And so in that sense, it can be wasted. can't it which is such a shame so so I can see where you're coming from with these sort of one-off days because you really do have to have a commitment to uh, protecting some time to really share that and also delve deeper and and really get that understanding because more often than not you've just scratched the surface haven't you so it's not going to result in some meaningful um, change Maria, stay tuned, stay with us, and I hope our listeners are going to stay tuned, and we will be back very shortly. It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Listen Edexcel's new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. So, Maria, are you still with us? Yes. Oh, wonderful. So, I'm Fanola Jackson, and for those that are perhaps just tuned in now or have gone for a cup of tea, you're listening to The Late Show on Teachers Talk Radio. Absolutely wonderful to have Maria O'Neill along. And we are talking about proactive pastoral care and really looking at what conditions are needed to nurture happy, healthy, and successful learners and really looking at the responsibility for schools to be these safe havens of hope and love and safety. And we're covering a lot of ground, aren't we, Maria? We're um, discussing a lot, which which is brilliant. And um, I know lots that came out in your your book as well. And we've just, just before that break there, we were talking about uh, quick fixes and the temptation to send a member of staff onto a one-day course but we've got to be cautious with this and and you've really got us thinking about uh, the reasons why that isn't always the best idea and the best use of um, funds for schools and I'd like to move on now Maria to the importance of building effective well-being partnerships and 
you know, well-being, like other areas we've discussed tonight, well-being something that's difficult to measure, isn't it? So I'd l love to hear your thoughts on that. Um, it is very difficult to measure, and there have been some, um, well, measures that have been brought in by different IT companies, and they are great. However, you know, my advice is always, and I am very much about school empowerment and using the school capacity because schools are great establishments. They just need a little bit of time to stop, get off the express train and plan what is needed for them. So for me, the best way to look at well-being is start with the five uh, areas that I mentioned before and look at what is the problem what does my concern data show me or you know whatever platform you're using for recording safeguarding incidents um what are behavior problems what are you know problems in terms of engagement and once you have identified the problems you know exactly what you want to find out so it's just putting those questions in the questionnaire and sending it out to your audience to your parents, to your pupils. And with that data, you can really see what is going on and what is needed uh, in terms of, um, you know, moving forward together. Um, so, yes, always, always focus on your unique um, concept, on your unique environment and measure what you have got by using your words because People know their students and their parents the best, not the expert who comes from the outside and advises different things, but you know your community the best. So in order to know more, ask the questions, talk, have the focus groups. I know it all takes time. And some people say, we don't have that time. That's fine, but maybe spending finances on the external expert give people a chance, free them up a little bit so they can do that, that work. It's, it's, it's very important to build capacity from within because experts come and go, but you know, you have got a strong, and in, I, I take into consideration the retention and the recruitment and people are leaving, but that's why it's everybody's responsibility and it would be good for everybody to have that knowledge. Oh, I think that's really insightful. Um, I've been madly scribbling that phrase down, building capacity from within. And, you know, I would argue that that's so relevant right across the board because teachers feel so overwhelmed with the amount to do and the workload can be ridiculous. Um, and then sending people out on courses and getting these experts with long lists of what to do which as you said aren't always relevant to your school's particular context or needs at that right time or, or um, the pupils needs and so I think giving teachers time don't underestimate the power of that to really have those professional conversations and also that thinking time I mean I'm very passionate about giving teachers time to read because there's, there's so much out there and, and you just, you, you really need some headspace to do that justice and, you know, decide on what the priorities are and then really say to teachers, this is how much we value this right now because we are actually going to give you the time 
to do this part of your role properly and that is so important so, so I'm really pleased you talked about that and I feel very inspired by that phrase building capacity from within and really using teachers expertise as well and not just always thinking I've got to get the external expert in but but really um, valuing um, the resource that you've got in school and then um, giving that time which is just valuable isn't it it really is valuable at the moment I'm just thinking Maria something else that that you um, looked at, well sometimes something that you raised in your book that, that got me thinking over the summer when I read it and I'm just coming back to the notes that I wrote and you're talking about spiritual and moral goodness and that sort of jumped out of the page um, and I really wanted to sort of find out a little more and this isn't really an area that that's included in many schools pastoral programs but but what have you learned from your research in this area that you'd be happy to share with our listeners tonight I think it's really important to include this part of well-being in into curriculum because whether it's spiritual whether it's someone who believes in God or you know someone who has got strong religious views um, they can develop and they grow because all the religions will have certain well, standards in many respects um, of how to lead your life and what a good life means and what type of person you need to be um, and that's you know that's really important to acknowledge because I worked in schools where there were not many religious pupils and I worked in schools where the majority of pupils were religious and there was a multi-religious um, multi um, prayer room and all of those things. So it all depends on the environment. But even if there are not many religious you know, people, um, students, uh, families, it, it doesn't really matter because you still have got that growth as a person. It's about being a decent human being. So how do you grow as a person? That's a very important issue because again i'm going back to pshc curriculum because that's where pupils are taught about well-being and other things and are we actually teaching them how to be a decent human being and what does it mean to be a decent human being um and it's all about all those values that again i don't want them to be laminated and just somewhere in the corridors empathy kindness you know all those things they do matter but they've got to be put into action. Sometimes we teach values without giving students opportunity to put them into action. And that's where some of the schools do fall um, in terms of their delivery and not connecting all the dots in terms of, okay, we talked about values in PSHC curriculum, but what, what do we do as a school to, to allow pupils to practice those values? Um, so, yes, it's... Um, it's so, so important to ensure that we allow pupils to grow um, personally as a human being. And of course, there is the academic development and there is the skills development, which is great. But concentrating on the inner world, what makes me grow as a person, how I can develop myself, because I haven't had that when I was a child in this in my school. Well, there was nothing like that at all and it's only when i started 
teaching, I started looking at the self-development programs and how to be more assertive and how to do this. So for me, it was brand new, but I always wished, oh, I wish I had something like this when I was growing up, would have made much, you know, well, yeah, many, well, yes, um, I would, I wouldn't have made as many mistakes at all, you know, at all. So I would have really loved to have something like that in school. But um, we have got an opportunity to give that to our pupils now, now that we know the importance of this. Absolutely. And, and it's exciting, isn't it? Sort of thinking about that. And, you know, I love that, how to be a decent human being. And there isn't a, you know, a teacher or parent out there who wouldn't want that for their child. And yet, you know, are we giving enough time to that in a school? And, you know, I, and what you said about values really resonates with me because, um, I think schools can can have values and they on the website and on the wall and laminated, but unless they're really underpinning and driving every aspect of school life, children aren't going to have enough exposure and enough experience and and to really gain that understanding, that true understanding of them, and to really see the importance of those values. So so I love that and, and found that really fascinating um, part of your book. And I know you talked then about character education and how this shouldn't be restricted to the PSHE lesson. And again, I think character education perhaps needs a bit of um, discussion and defining as well because I think that can be quite a confused term um, can't it in, in schools so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that has had some uh, bad reviews and some good reviews but it's not about character education it's really about how schools implemented because there are so many wonderful ideas but some of them do fall during implementation period, it's how we implement things. For me, character education is everything. It's that development as a person, development of the moral compass, uh, development of my values, or even being aware of my values and being aware of my character strengths. And again, you see, if you're aware of your character strengths, you love yourself just a little bit more. So it is, you know, our responsibility to make people realize that they do have a lot of character strengths and we are all different. And the conversation changes when we talk from the point of strength rather than from the point of weakness. So it's, it is changing the narrative. Now, character education, and that's, you know, going back to ticking boxes, uh, very often the schools will say that, oh, yes, we've covered that in PSHC, but that's not enough. That's what we called the lip service before. Um, for me, character education is the commitment of staff to develop young people. And it could be the, you know, for example, during PE lessons, what can we, you know, develop that resilience, the physical resilience the discipline, um, you know, we can develop loads of values and strengths throughout those lessons. What about drama, creativity? What a wonderful strength that is. Again, art, it's about developing that creativity and even the um, appreciation of beauty, which is a fantastic character strength to have. 
through academic subjects. Again, we can look at academic honesty, for example, or we could look at the same curiosity and getting people to research certain things. So although we can talk about character education in PSHC, and we can look at the character strengths and we can look during our careers lessons at the, you know, employability skills, whatever they are, you know, it's so important to have that message reinforced throughout all the different subjects that we are developing that human being, a decent human being with all the strengths. Absolutely. Now, it's so, so important. And um, I was fascinated to um, read your recent blog on kindness. And I'm going to share a personal story here because I remember being given the kindness prize um, at the end of year six at primary school. And at the time, it didn't really seem as good as getting, say, the maths prize. And well, let's be honest, I was never going to get that. But it, I was a bit embarrassed. It seemed a bit of a fluffy prize. And yet now in my 40s, well, I've come across the best and worst of human behavior and really believe that kindness is everything. And I have a degree, a master's under my belt, PGCE, and recently my MPQH. But I look back and you know what? I'm really proud of that kindness prize. And when I written end of year reports, kindness is a quality that I really love to highlight and to value. So I'm looking at my notes here and I picked out something from your blog and I, I'm going to share it now with our listeners that you can't reach your fullest capabilities of kindness without first being kinder to yourself. And I was wondering if you'd be so kind as to share and uh, talk about the incident on the train with the phone call and how this got you thinking in a new way, if you'd be willing to do that, Maria. Yes, of course. So um, I was, I wouldn't say I was in a dark place, but it was pretty grey down there. And um, I was on a train going to one of the schools to deliver the, the, the train and then it was early in the morning and um, I was tired. I think I was at the stage where I have been kind to other people, I have been kind to pupils, have been kind to staff, but I was just worn out. And, um, and my friend phoned me because I didn't return their call the night before, so they were a bit worried about me and they gave me a ring and um, I probably sounded a little bit grumpy, like, oh, just leave me alone, I'm fine. And they were just, you know, do you even love yourself? And that stuck with me. And I use that phrase with pupils um, a few times since then, because once an angry pupil um, has a confrontation with someone else and, you know, it stops them straight away when I say, you know, do you love yourself? And they never thought about it in that way. So I have used that kindness that my friend um sort of gave me and I do ask this question quite a lot because it is so important to be kind to yourself first and to accept yourself for who we are and I noticed with with pupils especially since the lockdown they don't like themselves their body image has suffered very many times when I was 
delivering an online lesson and I was talking to the pupils, many girls will say, um, you know, mom, could we switch the camera off? I, I, I don't want to see myself on the screen. So it has affected so many areas of our young people's lives. And um, that incident on the train really, you know, you can, you can say those things to pupils, but you have got to feel them yourself. And I know what impact that had on me. So um, I'm carrying on the, the impact going. Oh, thank you so much. Now, that's lovely to share that. And I think, you know, it's heartbreaking, isn't it, to hear that young people not liking themselves, not thinking that they come up to scratch and, you know, all these pressures from social media and and this sort of perception of what they've got to look like, what they've got to wear. And, and it's, it's really tough, isn't it? We, you know, being a young person right now, for lots of reasons, as, as we've discussed, and, and, you know, that, that brings home that, that this pastoral work is, is absolutely crucial, isn't it? Because the challenges on young people right now are huge, monumental. And, you know, to be those real sort of kindness advocates and kindness champions and really saying to people, just love yourself for who you are and, uh, you know, you don't have to fit a particular mould is is absolutely um, imperative. And, and I think we're very lucky to have people like you um, leading the way with this, Maria, and really, really speaking out about it because, because it is just so, so important. And, um, <laughs> and you know, um, thinking about, because um, time is ticking along, um, but, you know, talking about social media and perceptions and, you know, I know you often talk about thriving in a digital world and sometimes I think, gosh, is that even possible, you know, with all the challenges that that represents. But I know you spoke to me recently about some recent research and how you've, you know, your own thinking has moved on and developed um, and as we talked earlier, COVID has really transferred even more of our lives online and normalized this. So, so what are the challenges and perhaps, you know, thinking positively opportunities ahead uh, and how can we thrive in a digital world? I think there are, um, again, we need to approach the digital world from the definition of the well-being and the five areas of well-being. When it comes to the physical health, obviously the impact is negative. It's the um, eyes, um, headaches, uh, feeling dizzy, all of those things that can happen to you if you're in front of the screen too much. Um, in terms of the mental health, addiction is the most serious problem. And that's why it's so important to understand your thoughts, to self-regulate. And, you know, if parents can't self-regulate, they are showing this example to young people, what chance have the young people got to self-regulate? And to be fair, throughout my research, uh, when I asked young people, you know, what would they tell their parents? Uh, a lot of them said to get off their social media and spend some time with me. So again, it's such a, and that's why parental engagement and involvement is so important. And for schools to have the knowledge to educate the parents. And again, throughout the research, when I was talking to the parents, one of the parents started saying, yeah, I have got healthy digital habits. 
as they have gone through the different questions, they said, no, I haven't got healthy digital habits. So again, it's the knowledge, but only really the school could push that knowledge onto the parents because parents are not going to go out and try to learn about well-being and the digital well-being. Most people think of well-being as still physical and mental. Now, in terms of emotional health, digital world can have both positive and negative effects. And the negative is when there are so many layers of external validation in the digital world. It's the likes, it's the status in the game, whatever it is. And it can go both ways, because if you're successful, then it will be positive emotions. But if someone didn't like your post or if something happened and, you know, it, it really knocks you down um, or young people and to be honest, adults as well. When it comes to a social, again, it's a huge area and the WhatsApp groups of parents talking about schools and I have dealt with a numerous you know, incident arriving from the parental WhatsApp groups when parents name the children in those WhatsApp groups. So parents, again, need to be educated in terms of social uh, well-being. And again, when I was talking to children, they said, I don't want my photos online. Mum shares too many things online. How do we establish those healthy boundaries and healthy relationships online? Because for some pupils, um, and I have looked at the uh, pupils who might not succeed at school, but they succeed in that digital world and they're a different person. You know, their behavior is different because they might not be accepted in the real class, in the real life, but they are accepted in their little gaming community or social community. And it could you know, give that connectivity, which is super important for teenagers when they start separating from families and parents. Um, so yes, social well-being could be both positive and negative. When it comes to skills development, we don't often emphasize enough how important the digital world for, you know, for, for skills development, because you can look how to bake, how to dance, you can look for recipes. Um, and it's so important. Or so someone said to me, one of the pupils, oh, I just look for ideas and then I adapt them and uh, make my own things. So the skills development, definitely positive impact. Uh, academic development, um, it's that research, the curiosity, finding out things. But again, um, it's received a quite negative feedback at times because when teachers just ask students to research that's not going to work there need to be certain criteria during that research work for pupils to meet to be to be successful um, and in terms of the spiritual and moral development again some people said to me well oh, we're using those apps those self-development apps or uh, you know those prayer apps are really good so we need to really look how can we teach pupils about positives and what structures can we put into place at school and at home to support them in terms of developing the positive skills because it's not going to go away we're talking about artificial intelligence you know 
it's going to be more and more and more. So how can we really prepare, thoroughly prepare students for that life in the digital world? And it starts with them. It starts with understanding themselves, with self-regulation. It always comes down to you because the most important relationship they will have is with themselves. Absolutely. So it's so important, that self-regulation, isn't it? And, um, you know, and it's difficult to do perhaps when emotions are running high and, and, and it's something that really does need to be taught and learned and practiced. And so interesting that you said about you know, many young people saying, I just want, you know, my parents, carers to put their phone or iPad down and just spend some time with me. And, you know, I'm in primary education. That's certainly the case there. And I think often with teenagers, they, they might not say it, but, but they, you know, that's, that's how many are feeling. So, so it's so interesting. And I think it's getting that message out in the right way uh, with, parental involvement parental engagement to get that really you know put across because as you said I think a lot of adults think, oh no I've got a very healthy relationship um you know with, with devices and, and online habits but then when they actually think about it and, and they aren't worried about being judged and they can be honest and they're talking in a safe space um you know they, they realize that they haven't so huge work to be done because as you said with AI and, and more challenges ahead it really does need to be uh, confronted and, and schools you know have got a huge responsibility in this area. Maria stay tuned and we will be right back. It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. you so maria just just you're still there aren't you yes. sorry i was just thinking i was just looking through a few messages that we've had tonight um and there's a question posed um by lucy who has asked about um engaging parents and she said in your experience maria you know what has worked particularly well are there any nuggets that you that you could share i know we haven't got long but but Anything um, that has worked well that, that perhaps might help some of our listeners tonight? 
for me, working with parents is always about building relationships with parents. And how do you build relationships? It's that proactive communication. It's maybe running focus groups. Uh, you know, sometimes pe people don't volunteer in the end. But the fact that we actually offered and we wanted parental opinions, it did matter. Um, so it is building relationships and making parents feel safe. That's what, in my experience, worked. And if they do feel safe, if there is that relationship of trust, it's much easier than to deal with more difficult situations and having difficult conversations when they you know, arise and they inevitably will arise because um, things do happen. So it is building relationships. And I'm not just talking about, you know, soft relationships or whatever it is, but it's about those honest relationships, no sugarcoating, but making sure that parents understand that you always will put their child at the heart of decision making. Absolutely. And I think, you know, if parents are only hearing the negatives or the behaviour incidents, it's, it's very hard because defence barriers go up and they're not going to be able with the best will in the world to be receptive and to hear no matter how well-meaning <laughs> the advice or the purpose of this particular conversation is perhaps with a, with a different member of staff who who hasn't you know been reporting any anything back negatively but you know building those relationships so so that the parents can really trust um, staff and really guess that they do you know, have my child's interests at, you know, at heart and they are coming at this with the right intention. So let's try this, let's work together. And, and I think that's absolutely invaluable advice. So thank you for that. And, you know, just thinking, we've just got a couple of minutes really left before we close, but, um, you know, thinking about the start of a new academic year now, isn't there coming up? And, you know, I think, the kindness message that came out, well, that's obviously key, isn't it? Going into a new term, we don't know what, what's been going on in everyone's summer holidays. And, you know, by having that kind uh, approach, you know, you perhaps could be the one thing that really helps reduce somebody else's pain by you being kind. So I think that's a, a great message to be going out with. Um, but I just don't know if you've got any final words that you'd like to share with our listeners on any aspect that we've been talking about tonight, Maria. Um, I think also being kind to ourselves as teachers, as leaders. And sometimes we start the new year with the best intentions and we are all ready to go after that, you know, the Sunday night. And we are there and we are ready. But sometimes things don't work out and that's fine. And if they don't work out, it's not the end of the world. So you just need to get up, be kind to yourself and start again. So it's not final. We are on a journey. Parents are on a journey. Students are on a journey. And sometimes there is a bit of a diversion. There is sometimes um, a few bumps on the road. And that's absolutely fine. As long as you're kind to each other and you're kind to yourself. Well, Maria, do you know what? There was certainly a bit of a diversion, wasn't there, with the start of my show tonight? And you were incredibly kind and patient and uh, stuck with me. And, you know, only a small example, but it didn't go to plan at the start, but we kept in there. I had fantastic support, as always, from the Teachers Talk radio team. And you have been absolutely wonderful. And those final words, I am going to be literally 
saying them to myself before my head hits the pillow tonight because we're not robots are we and you know we're dealing with an awful lot on a daily basis and that sort of real sort of um conviction that we can start again we're on a journey and you know if something goes wrong we just pick ourselves up we go again and we are hopefully that little bit stronger and wiser um, from it so everything is an opportunity to grow isn't it and you know we can't beat ourselves up because you know in this education world we need to be strong don't we and tough we've got a lot uh, to deal with and we're certainly going to need our energy and sometimes the voice we use to ourselves you know is awful isn't it we wouldn't dream of using those words and saying that to other people but to ourselves um, you know sometimes anything goes so I think that message to be kind to ourselves is absolutely brilliant and I can't thank you enough you've been a fantastic guest for my first show of the academic year and you've left us with lots to think about to reflect upon um, I've been madly scribbling so I will make some notes as well put them in my journal um, and refer back to that um, over the next term so Maria thank you so much thank you so much for having me You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio. It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs 